Thank you very much, Patrick. We're going to have a panel discussion now with a number of, of uh, experts. We have, uh, first of all, I'll invite Frances Ruan, who is the, um, she served as director of the ESRI uh, from 2006-2015, and again, so straddles the crisis in that sense, having previously taught in, in the Department of Economics at Trinity College Dublin. She's currently chair of the board of the Abbey Theatre, president of the Statistical and Social Inquiry Society of Ireland, honorary fellow of TCD and a research affiliate at the SRI. Her research interests and her commentary generally are in economic development, foreign direct investment and trade. Outside Ireland, her current activities include membership of the European Statistics Governance Advisory Board and the advisory boards of the Fraser of Allender Institute in Scotland and the Kiel Centre for Globalisation in Germany. Uh, very pleased always when we, have, when we host events like this that we have the home team and John McHale is the Dean of the College of Business, Public Policy and Law at NUI Galway. He's established professor, before I came here I didn't realise how significant that is, but he's established professor in economics and Dean of the College of Business, Public Policy and Law at NUI Galway. He was chair of the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council from July 2011 to 2016 and has previously held positions as at, the, uh, at Harvard University and at Queen's University, Ontario. He's been a consultant to the World Bank on various migration and development projects currently president of the Irish Economic Association and an associate editor of the Economic and Social Review, has a PhD and an AM degree from uh, Harvard University. And thirdly then, we're very pleased to welcome, as we always say uh, in Ireland, an expert to somebody from far away. So we have a visitor, uh, uh, Angela Knight, who is the former chief executive of the British Bankers Association. Uh, she's chair of the UK's Office of Tax Simplification, the senior independent director of uh, TPICAP PLC, non-executive director of the boards of Arbuthnot Latham and Tamper Wimpy PLC. She's also the chair of Tillman, Brew and Dolphin. Was chief executive of the Bank, British Bankers Association during the crisis. Uh, joined the BBA from the Association of Private Client Investment Managers and Stockbrokers, now the Wealth Management Association, where she'd been the CEO since the autumn of uh, 1997. She was MP for Erwash from 1992 to 1997 and during that time was a Treasury Minister working with Kenneth Clark, MP, Chancellor of the Exchequer, and she was awarded a CBE for a service to the financial service industry in 2007. So not only is an expert somebody from far away, but somebody who again has had a very significant uh, input and experience in at, at very multi-dimensional, if you like, uh, along the crisis. Uh, one of the challenges of being in somebody from far away is that Angela needs to leave us at three o'clock, so if she goes at that stage, it's because she needs to catch a flight, uh, one of the challenges of being president of the university is my diary on a Friday afternoon means I need to leave at 3.30. So when we leave, uh, it won't be because we are annoyed at anything, uh, but because we have uh, other, unfortunately, because it would be much more interesting, I'm sure, to be here, commitments to meet. Uh, so we start with Angela, maybe, because um, thinking about, about uh, Patrick's comments in the, in the context of, of the British banks and how, first of all, the question of the, the role of the banks uh, generally, but also the the tracking, if you like, if you want to use that word, not a, not a good word, of British bank interest rates. Any sense of a response to Patrick's thinking there in that context? Well, uh, looking back, I don't think we're supposed to be doing that, are we? More mm. looking forward. But I answered, I wrote down, scribbled the answer to Patrick's uh, question. Question one, well, that's for you, because <laughs> troikas are for you. Two, the euro, well, we didn't join it in the UK, which gave us a bit more flexibility to get out of trouble. Three, in the UK, this was bankers versus developers. There is no debate in the UK. The bankers are responsible for everything. I'm sure they're responsible for tooth decay as well. But, you know, there is, there is absolutely 
no, um, no uh, debate at all. Vulture funds and mortgages, well, that's been answered. Where there's something that's of value, a vulture fund will find it. And so if you've got the vulture funds around, you've got value around. Five, Irish bankers, banks safer. Well, the banks may be safer, but I will debate with you that the system may not. And maybe that's a bit of a looking ahead that we need to do. Interest rates, you've answered. ECB, well, glad we don't have to deal with ECB much in the UK and probably less after Brexit next year. If we Brexit, what sort of Brexit? I don't know. Austerity, very interesting, your austerity chart, because absolutely the case in the UK that the big spending came beforehand. The, if you like, the, what I would call the public finances were well out of control long before the crisis because the um, optimism of governments are that they will carry on spending, economies are going to go on forever, and then they start to use extraordinary phraseology. And the minute you hear extraordinary phraseology, watch out, because this was the Goldilocks. It was the Goldilocks time. Mm. You know, never too hot, never too cold, never too big, never too small. The minute you start to hear asinine comments like that, beware. And I would argue that we're starting to get there uh, this time. Nine, uh, your question nine was, has this last crisis been worse than the 1980s? I, I would argue that every crisis is pretty awful. It just does it rather differently. And it also depends where it is. I mean, if I go back to the UK again, if you have a financial crisis, it's predominantly in the southeast. And because everything else is in the southeast, the thing's absolutely appalling. But I come from the north of England, from the manufacturing heartlands. And so the crisis there they, was in the late 1970s and into the 80s. But London didn't bother about it because it didn't do manufacturing. So actually crises, you know, they affect different parts at different times. And the answer to 10 is 2018 shaping up for a similar sort of problem. I actually think we are shaping up for a problem. So I'm sorry to be slightly negative, but it is a Friday afternoon and you've got the weekend to get over it. <laughs> but I think what we've done in uh, a number of the actions, however commendable and right they were, to deal with the last crisis are building up the problems which will result in us having another crisis. And after all, economies go in 10-year cycles. And given that, that you're thinking, at, as you remarked about thinking ahead, could, could you elaborate on some of those? Mm -hmm. And then the panel might pick that up. Yeah. Um, uh, well, let, let, me give you, let me give you perhaps three. I, the first one is this, is we, we all talk about globalization. And if ever one saw you know, both the benefits and the problems of globalization, the run-up to, and then the financial crisis. Because just as you can distribute benefits around the world by globalization, so you can visit problems around the world too, and I hadn't thought about that. And so Lehman's, which is sitting behind me, or was when we all came in, caused the whole thing to come to a halt. Since then, a lot of changes has taken place. Banks hold more capital. Banks hold more li liquidity. They have to analyze their risks much better. Senior management responsibilities means that individuals in the banks can be fingered. There's resolution uh, regimes and a whole load of things like that. And all the major countries have done it together. So that means that this time, if one of those things are wrong, far more countries will fall over. 
Don't forget, quite a lot of countries didn't. Think about what happened in Canada. Big banks, yeah, they held a bit more capital, but that's all. But big banks, what happened there was then the central um, the banker, seeing the credit crunch come, because we talk about 2008, but it had been coming through 2007. Credit crunch came, he flooded the whole place with liquidity, and then mopped up afterwards. Those banks held. But, you know, we didn't do it in the UK. You didn't, it wasn't done in some other countries. Now, you don't have those abilities to take those unilateral uh, actions. And everybody now is putting the same sort of risk weightings in the same sort of places. Foul up over there, and your chances of getting a much bigger foul up. So that is one of the benefits, well, one of the benefits of harmonization doing it the same way is you've got that broader stability, but one of the downsides is if one of those technical areas is wrong, and everybody knows one's wrong, they just don't know what it is. You know, when it goes, it takes more with it. So that's one. I think these, the second thing is we've got bigger outliers now. China is a huge outlier. China doesn't play. Nobody really knows what goes on in there. But China's tentacles now are far more wide and far more deep than before. Not just in Africa, where we all know they've got very significant financing. But there's, there's people here that'll know this much better than me. But you know, they own things like, uh, like the port of Rotterdam. They own a lot in the UK. A China foul-up has a far more broader um, push into our economies and into various areas of our economies than we knew before. And the third reason is this, is that the actions that were taken, however right they were, and for heaven's sake, you know, I'm not going to say that anybody took a wrong action. They got to make it up as they went along, facing a cliff edge. Well, you know, good on all those people that were there that, that, that did it. But those actions that were taken, uh, an, an aspect of them is that they have resulted in the people and the political classes moving further and further apart. And we're now seeing much greater instability in traditional politics and the rise, and fringe, uh, the rise of small and fringe parties. The result is, is that political instability, which we kind of, in Europe, look to others of having, we have them now in Europe. And when you have political instability, then the ability of countries to act together is much less. And of my three, I've got a fourth, which I do beg your pardon. And that is the quantitative easing, which was sort of made up on the hoof. And again, was a pretty good idea because it pumped money in different sorts of ways into the economy. I would call it printing money. You'll find the experts say I'm wrong. In effect, it is. It's just they did it electronically this time. The net result of that is you have central banks holding government debt much more than was ever <coughs> the case in the past. Where's your firepower? So I, I'm an optimist. I hope that we will have a happy ending. But what I do know is that we've got a number of very significant pressures that have been built up. And Patrick, I might let you back on that because you kind of answered the question because of time, but you're thinking on those. Have you done one of those four or any other issues that you'd raise? No, I, I mean, absolutely spot on. I, th I think there are... are not, not, there, the, one thing I picked up from what Andrew said, 
the solutions create their own problems. Mm. That doesn't mean that solutions are wrong, but they, no. they, they create an environment where you can't do what you did before, particularly in the, the quantitative easing, the low interest rates. Interest rates are very low. Usually, the reaction of the monetary policymaker yeah. to a downturn is lower the interest rates. Yes. Well, it's hard to lower the interest rates mm -hmm. when you're at zero, mm -hmm. um, or even minus 0.4 of a percent, which is mm -hmm. the ECB is at. Mm -hmm. so, so you don't have that in your toolbox. You may have other things in mm -hmm. your toolbox. But of course, the political risks, I think, of very the high. situation are, are, are even mm -hmm. higher. Uh, um, my comments were really focused narrowly on the Irish banks. And they've been, they've been harnessed and humbled to some extent. Um, and that's why I don't see them as the most likely source of the next crisis. Mm. The next crisis for us probably mm. relates to uh, loss of the tax revenue from the American companies, mm -hmm. uh, which everybody's aware of, but still spending it as if it was going to be here forever. Yeah. No, I agree with that. That's why I said, I, you know, it's not the Irish banks, it's the system, yeah. if you like. And of course, perhaps the last thing that neither of us mentioned is that the actions that have been taken have penalised the saver rather than the borrower. And that, again, has put a perception of unfairness. And when you've got a perception of unfairness, that is a real problem to overcome. And here, the borrowers suffered as well. So yeah. there, there, there are a massive number of, of people who took hits in different ways. Yeah, of course. There's a lot of grievance right across mm. society saying, why did we end up here? Yeah, exactly. We, sh we would like to have pressed a reset button, but we, they didn't supply a reset mm -hmm. button. Mm -hmm. And Francis, your comment, one, one of the things I think about Patrick's question as well is the extent to which there were others yeah. I, very interesting change in the narrative at one stage around, say, the public sector, uh, mm -hmm. you know, low paid and so on. How, how the narrative changed at, at, at some stage uh, to look at other areas of, of, of blame, if you like, so, so, uh, and, and, and the, the consequences of that. I mean, I think one of the things that did happen after the crisis, I think it was 2009, um, was when the uh, decision was made to cut public sector pay. Mm. And really, the textbooks always said you can never do that. You can't cut nominal wages. You absolutely can't. But the government of the day decided at a certain stage that they absolutely had to do that. And they did it partly on foot of the fact that there had been significant increases in real wages in the public sector prior to the crash. So the justification was that the benchmarking couldn't really be afforded in that context, and therefore, therefore they were cut. I think it, it was I think it was an important um, move to make at the time because I think it gave the politicians some credibility. I think it gave the public sector bureaucrats and the central bankers who were leading this, the fact that they were taking the pay cuts as well, it meant that they had some um, credibility and, 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 and an ability to make those, to make those arguments. Um, I think it was, it was, what worries me, I suppose, about the moment is we seem to have sort of forgotten that now. So we, we were sort of heading back into a period of um, a return to public sector pay. And the early part of, and this is why narratives are really interesting and why 10-year events like this are so good, because you suddenly realise, oh, yes, something was said in 09, slightly different in 12, 14, 16, 18, it begins to change. Mm, mm. So one of the points we've made was that we would not have restoration of public sector pay. We would have a review and a restructuring of public sector pay to better match what the issues were for the public sector. In fact, what we seem to be heading for at the moment is a restoration. Yeah. And people would have agreed that the benchmarking uh, study that was done in the early, in the early noughties was, was very poorly done. It was, the methodology was absolutely inappropriate to Ireland at the time. But that, there's a sort of a sense that that's a benchmark and a reference point. So very often what happens is you make a change. Uh, it's done at a time. I'm not saying it was easy to take and, you know, we all, we all took it. But we didn't lose our jobs. We mm. kept our jobs mm. and other people were losing theirs and losing much bigger, bigger amounts of salary. But 
the worry that I would have at the moment is about what we learn from the past. You know, we're kind of returning back there without actually taking the time to review it. And I think this is, I suppose, a bit of a legacy of the world that's been created with globalization. I completely agree with the comments being made about the global system. I've, I have real problems with that. Uh, but I think one of the things is everything has become very short-termist. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of, you know, the early signs of this were quarter, quarterly reporting by US companies. Everything becomes the next quarter, the next quarter. That's everything really shuts rough. down to very short-termism. <clears throat> and of course, when the crisis happened, the government was worried about what was going to happen by the end of the next quarter. Would they make the, 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 the Troika targets? Would they make whatever uh, targets had been set? And we now need to kind of lengthen that out. And I think we've, you know, the, the, the government's programme for infrastructure, the 20, famous 2040 programme, which got a terrible dousing in the media, is actually a real sign of something moving in the right direction. Taking these longer term structural, demographically informed, um, you know, analysis gap formed, that sort of thing had to disappear in the short run. But getting it back in the long run is a much bigger challenge, I think, than many people, many people realise. And as I say, what worries me is the danger things that we were talking about more sensibly three or four years ago in relation to public sector pay are now seem to be a business as usual without reflection in terms of what the economy needs. And John, from the taxation perspective, so in your role in the Fiscal Council, Patrick mentioned the, the corporation tax, for example, as a risk. So your sense of that as, again, something we, we need to think about it as in the future context. Um. Sure, maybe just first sort of picking up on uh, Francis's point about, uh, about forgetting, one thing uh, we know is that we're going to have booms and busts and uh, mm. uh, maybe less often manias and, and, and panics. So in some sense, we will forget. The question is over sort of what time frame that uh, forgetting occurs, whether it's going to be years, decades, or even hopefully uh, 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 generations. And I do agree that the, the real benefit of an event like this is just a retrospective on anniversaries is one sort of opportunity to remember. Uh, but it's key that we sort of institutionalize that, uh, that memory as much as possible uh, in terms of sort of better policies and institutions. And I think uh, what uh, Patrick did uh, at his time uh, at the central bank in terms of really changing the structure uh, of financial regulation and supervision uh, is something uh, that puts us, puts us in a much stronger position now and, and, and hopefully uh, uh, protect us for the future. Uh, particularly in terms of fiscal policy, uh, maybe the changes haven't been sort of as radical, but the sort of new institutions, the Parliamentary Budget Office of the Oireachtas, the new Budgetary Oversight uh, Committee, uh, the Fiscal Council itself, changes in structure of the Department of Finance, and a whole new set of, of rules, uh, which are often maligned in terms of uh, when they're imposed from Europe, but we also have our own uh, Fiscal Responsibility Act and uh, uh, a sort of a domestic uh, uh, framework uh, for, for doing fiscal policy. Uh, and I think that this, this puts us in a, uh, a stronger position and hopefully helps make the system more resilient. So we've seen uh, the budget balance really come down, sort of, uh, uh, the budget deficit come down uh, close to, to balance. Now, I think to have resilience in a, in a very uncertain world, I think it would be better if we, uh, at this stage, moved into, in, into a surplus position. But I think there really uh, have been gains, that there have been... Uh, institutionalizations uh, of uh, that, uh, that memory, but uh, uh, the, the issue is how long uh, will that memory be retained. Now, we do face huge uncertainties, and we really do need uh, that resilience, uh, the kind of risks that, uh, that Angela mentioned. Uh, so certainly one uh, of them is the fact that we, uh, uh, we have been, over the last number of years, have, have very strong growth in tax revenues, 
part of it driven by corporation tax, but, but it's not strong growth overall. Uh, but the government has been spending those increases uh, pretty much at the rate that they're, that, that they're coming in, which has really slowed down uh, the improvement in the budget balance. So corporation tax revenues went from around $4 billion to around $8.5 billion now. Uh, and uh, be because it's not really uh, the result of that much sort of real extra uh, multinational activity, some of it certainly is, but a lot of it uh, is more in, in, in the type of uh, uh, you know, taxation management strategies that they're using. Uh, it could turn around. Uh, it's not a prediction, but uh, certainly it's, it's, it's uh, a source of vulnerability uh, and a source of risk. And so we could find ourselves uh, uh, you know, facing a significant deficit very quickly uh, if there were changes mm -hmm. on that front and because of changes in US uh, tax policy. Uh, I think there's, there's even more uncertainty. And then there's lots of other risks. I don't think you mentioned Brexit. Which is come to that Only very briefly. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we, we may come back to that. Uh, uh, the, the US expansion at this point uh, is nine years long, believe it or not. It, it kind of started mm, in, in 2009. And even though the evidence uh, really suggests that the probability of it ending doesn't really matter, it doesn't really that much matter that much how long it's gone on, uh, and I think the U.S. is on somewhat of a sugar high at the moment. Uh, there could be a, a, a downturn there that uh, could have significant global consequences. Uh, so that's another serious risk. Uh, just to, 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 uh, to list one more uh, relating to you know, a potential crisis in the Eurozone, which is unlikely. But you have to look at Italy, and I think, and, and, and be somewhat uh, worried with a Absolutely. populist government, a massive debt, uh, the uh, news coming out today in terms of they basically couldn't agree uh, to bring their budget deficit down, but it's actually uh, uh, going to be going up to about 2.5% of GDP next year. Given the size of their debt, uh, you would really have to worry how, those, uh, how that will develop uh, uh, over the coming months. And I think in terms of uh, potential uh, problems within the, the Eurozone, that would be the, uh, the, the, the obvious risk point. So again, none of these things are predictions, but it just shows what an uncertain world we're in and the importance of having resilience in the financial system and in the, uh, in the budgetary system. I think we're in a better place, uh, but uh, there's certainly no room for complacency. And before you go, Angela, then the, the, the Brexit question. You, you didn't raise those, but I think someone is connected. So the, the systemic <coughs> issues around uh, you know, one change having a knock-on effect, maybe more so even than it did in 2008. Your sense of, of first of all, the implications of Brexit, and secondly, how it will play out. Obviously, that second one is a much more difficult political <laughs> question. But, well, yes, uh, but I mean, you can't even say what the implications of Brexit are no. until you know what sort of Brexit mm. we're going to be doing. Um, I think that, uh, I, well, I do personally feel that there's been a significant failure across the whole of our um, political and administrative estate in that here we are, however... Um, far it is two years from the Brexit vote and only a few months from the actual drop-dead date, that there's still no agreement amongst the political classes on what is the shape of our even interim relationship, let alone our future relationship with other European countries. I should say at this point that, of course, the UK is leaving the EU. It is not leaving Europe. Mm -hmm. The UK has had long and very close relationships with the island of Ireland, and there are many of these relationships are not tied up within some sort of EU umbrella or EU parcel. And sometimes that is forgotten. 
as one uh, looks to the sorts of ways to unwind. I'll, I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you a, a quick guess of what I think is going to happen. I actually think that what we will do is some sort of what they're now referring to as Canadian free style, free, um, uh, free trade style agreement with a special twist, which is called the twist for the island of Ireland. That's what I think that we'll do. And the reason I say that to you all is because that more or less commands the majority ground within Parliament and I think would be enormously difficult for the, uh, um, the Brussels machinery to turn down. And at this point in time, the agreement, whilst it still will go through the Brussels machinery, actually will be for the leaders of the various countries to decide. And the leaders of the various countries all know just how difficult these agreements are uh, to get to internally, let alone externally. And that long-term trading ar uh, arrangement is one that we'll all need. As far as the particular financial aspects of it, whichever form we, we do, the largest pools of liquidity will stay in London. There might be a drift, and I don't think that that drift matters too much. But it is the pool of liquidity that gives the choice, that provides the options, that gets the price. And an aspect that I've come across, perhaps, perhaps across this last two or three years, which has soared up the agenda, certainly as far as I'm concerned, but less so in the public domain, is that if you've got the certainty of English law, that's the law of contract that sits around a large pool of liquidity, then you have got still a long-term, very attractive place to be. And it behoves every financial company that operates in London, frankly, to stop talking about their problems and turn it around and look at their customers and say, whatever it is that actually ultimately happens in the type of Brexit that the UK does, this is what I am going to do with my company to ensure that my customers can access the financial product that I'm trying to sell them. And on the board of TPICAP, which is our largest global interdealer broker, that's exactly what we've done. So we're not going to moan at people for not understanding us. We're going to make it easy for us to do business. And if that is the attitude that's taken in Britain, the attitude taken by London and the financial services industry, then that will keep at least that part that the, that, that the UK has in the role of the global financial system running smoothly. And that ultimately is a very significant net plus, And that's where our focus should be. So sorry it is not as detailed as you want, but I'm not making the decisions. If I was, I'd have done it. <laughs> <laughs> the women. <laughs> thank you very much. And I think uh, yeah, Angela's to go. I'm I think so. Yeah, yep. Yes, so I'm sorry about that. Much. Thank you, thank for, you very much. For joining thank us. You. So. Yeah. And just, Patrick, not to dwell too much on Brexit, but going back to the, the uh, Troika and, and maybe back to the beginning, if you like, the, one of the curiosities is, is your thinking around 
the time when the Troika came in mm. and, uh, you know, the government was uh, denying everything and seeing nothing and we had two government ministers saying, no, they, they weren't on their way. And then your intervention on Morning Ireland, do you remember mm. going to coffee with Neil Brennan saying, what did you think of what Patrick Owen said? And I, I, it was difficult to know what to think at that stage. You're thinking behind that and was that... What, what, what was your, was that a conscious decision or was it something... Uh, oh no, I just stumbled uh, into that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, a rhetorical question, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, it, it, you know, let me put it like this. Once I was at a, a, a before that actually, was in, in a Rochtas committee and, and they asked me some questions about how the central bank had performed in the years up to, and I made some rather pointed criticisms of what had happened in the, in the years before. And a, a, a senior civil servant, uh, I met him that evening and he said, but, but, but you're criticizing your predecessors. And, and I thought, well, yeah, so what's that about? And so I, I did that telephone call uh, focused on, on my mandate, which was financial stability and, and get, get a, a, a story of stability out there. I didn't think, what are the consequences for um, Brian Lenehan's position in the Fianna Fáil party? What are the consequences for the Fianna Fáil party? Because that was none of my business. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, yeah. Um, it's also kind of funny because it's a sort of time, uh, during the layman's crisis, we watched the congressional hearings, and we watched Ben Bernanke and all the top decision makers, and they're sitting there for hours on end talking to congressmen, and I'm thinking, actually, I know more of what's going on in the markets than Ben Bernanke does because he's stuck there in the middle of, mm. but then a year later, I find myself in the same position. So I'm talking to Troika people, and I'm doing, and I'm not thinking, you know, what's going to be the headline in the morning? What are the ministers? I hadn't actually seen those clips of the, the mm. poor ministers who weren't up to speed and what was going on. I hadn't actually seen those clips. I mean, I knew they were They were saying, well, we're not negotiating. Everything mm. negotiating. You only decide to... I'm negotiating now when it's all settled. Mm. So, yeah. <laughs> I, it, it, I know it was... It, it got a lot more attention than I expected. That's certainly true. On balance, I think it was a positive because, uh, for Ireland, because it said, you know, actually the thing is being handled by, by professionals, you know, sorry, but, you know, and, it, and the rest, there's politics going on as well, but there, there is, a, 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 you know, somebody's looking after the financial side, and I think that was appreciated at home and abroad, mm. and I think the only people who didn't appreciate it were the people who are actually not handling a domestic party political situation very well. Mm. And it, it also wasn't, wasn't really news, right? It, it wasn't news. It was on the front page of the previous every, day's Irish Times. Yeah, everybody, <laughs> everybody knew, so it was better to uh, mm. uh, kind of say it and uh, upfront front sort of clarity to this. To, to the surprising thing is that people were surprised that mm. I said it. I mean, mm. what? That's, I, I, I'm not part of the political system. You say, well, somebody said to me at something, oh, but you were appointed by Brian Lenehan. Well, sorry, I was not appointed by Brian Lenehan. The governor of a central bank is appointed by the president on the advice of the government, but it's, it's, it's a function which is several. Anyway.
<laughs> could, I, Francis, yeah. could I just come in to you? I mean, so something that, that, that strikes me kind of listening to this discussion, and two things. One is, I think, Patrick, you had a line where you said, the crisis awaits us, it's historians. And I think that's a really interesting idea because we think of that as 30 years on. But the reality is, you started, President, at the very beginning of this discussion, talking about people in the audience who might have been eight or nine when this mm. happened. As they've grown up, what happened in this immediate history has had the biggest effect on their families, their parents, their grandparents, all the society around them. So there's a sense in which when you've got this kind of thing, we can't just wait for history. We have to begin to, I think, do much more an analysis and have more of a discussion of the political, societal sort of discussions that we're having, having here today. But I want to go back to the point that was made about the difference between the 1980s and that, and that crisis. And just as Patrick was describing it there, it struck me. In the 1980s, it was a crisis of our own making. So it was our own people all getting sorted out. In this last crisis, we were part of the globalization phenomenon. It was, you know, it wasn't, it was the international markets, it wasn't the Irish people. Yes, there were obviously the effects on our fiscal, fiscal situation, but a lot of it was way outside our control and therefore we had to do these negotiations with outside bodies. It was really, I think, the first crisis at that scale that we've ever had, whatever about crises that we've had before. And that brings me to, I suppose, a point that, that I think Angela was talking, t t touching on, and that is that we've created a globalized world without the institutions and the institutional structures that are sort of necessary to manage it. And nobody's calling that because nobody's ready to have that discussion. And, and I, you know, I think, you know, in terms of the, of the, of the, you know, with the Bretton Woods institutions that were set up after World War II, with the UN, with various different things, we did manage to get climate change organisations to try to help us with that. But ultimately, we have, in a sense, created, I won't say a monster, but in, in, in globalisation, we've created something over which we don't have the structures to really manage it very well. And what makes that very tricky is that technology has interacted with it and is actually going to interact more when we come to cyber security type things, which, which are, 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 are out there. And it's also going to matter more when the politics of the world becomes more aggressive. So your ability to have kind of cooperative without having structured institutions or widening the mandates of the existing institutions, but you don't have the cooperative atmosphere being created to, to really help, to help manage that. So that's where I would have a kind of a pessimism uh, in terms of the fact that, you know, Global issues are, the world is just much more interconnected than it was. And while we have to manage our own affairs as best we can, there are things that are way outside our control. And that's true for all countries, including the very big ones, which may be why they don't want to discuss it, because in fact, they're not in control of their own destinies in the same way as they might have thought they were. John, yeah. Can I just pick up on Francis's point uh, in, in terms of the uh, sort of waiting for the history uh, to, to be written? And I think we do... I think, again, these retrospectives are very uh, useful because it's important that we, we draw the right, uh, the right lessons. Uh, and I think a lesson, lessons that a lot of people have, have drawn is that the bank bailout was responsible for the austerity and the Troika were uh, major contributors to the austerity. And these were things that, that, that Patrick uh, addressed in, in his questions. Uh, and I think the reason it, it, it matters that we debate and discuss these things is that... Uh, and these things could come around again, and if we've drawn the long lessons, uh, uh, we might make mistakes. Uh, so, so just uh, focusing on that sort of why austerity uh, question. Uh, so it's certainly true that the cause of the crisis really wasn't primarily fiscal. It was, as sort of Patrick said, it was this sort of interacting property price, construction, credit bubble uh, that burst. 
Well, there, there, there was essentially sort of a hidden bubble in the public finances. Uh, so just looking at some, some numbers recently, between 2002 and 2007, government spending rose by 57 million, uh, 57 uh, uh, billion over, uh, over that five-year period. Uh, but the reason it was hidden is that despite tax cuts, uh, you had uh, revenues rising by over uh, 60 uh, billion over that, that period. But when the, uh, the property bubble burst, uh, then you had uh, essentially that revenue bubble bursting as well, and this very large deficit uh, emerged in, in, in 2008 uh, in, the, uh, in the public finances, reaching a peak uh, of uh, about 11.5% of, uh, of the economy uh, in, uh, in, in 2009. So this is uh, uh, really from the, so the, the collapse of the economy and the deficit rather than the direct effects of the bank bailout uh, itself. So uh, Patrick showed numbers uh, that the overwhelming uh, sort of increase really in the debt uh, uh, was due to the deficit and not to the direct costs of the, uh, of the bank bailout. Um, between sort of the end of 2007 and 2014, uh, the debt rose by about 150 uh, billion, but, but two thirds of that uh, uh, were directly uh, related to the, to the deficit. So you had to close that deficit uh, uh, so the independent of the uh, of the of the costs of the uh, of the bank bailout, and that was hugely responsible uh, for the uh, for the austerity. And then in terms of the troika, uh, so so that adjustment was going on since uh, uh, since two thousand and uh, and eight. Uh, and in the plan that the government had put together, I know Alan was involved in this uh, in late two thousand and ten. They had set out a four year plan that involved the deficit being brought down to 3% of GDP uh, by, uh, I think it was 2014. Uh, uh, the, the Troika actually ex extended that uh, by, by a year. Yeah. Uh, and uh, if, you, if you look what was happening in 2010 and even into 2011, uh, Ireland was just not creditworthy. You had this huge deficit uh, and it wasn't, uh, uh, able to, to borrow the money to, to, cover, to cover that. So the first order effect of the Troika uh, was to provide the funding, uh, avoiding what would have been much greater uh, austerity. Uh, so I think that the lessons that people have taken out, and there's no doubt that the, uh, the banking collapse you know, uh, uh, imposed a huge cost uh, on our uh, society. It probably was the trigger that sort of forced us ultimately uh, to, to need a, a bailout. Uh, but seeing the, the cost uh, of the bailout itself as being the primary cause of the austerity, and even worse, seeing the troika as being the cause of the austerity, uh, I, I think would be uh, really the wrong lesson to take. So it's very important that we debate these things, sort of draw the right lessons, uh, and uh, make sure that we're not carrying baggage in terms of wrong ideas uh, that could uh, uh, interfere with, a, with, with, a, with identifying the right response uh, if we were to face... Uh, such a situation again. And we will have time for questions in about 15 minutes or so, so people can be contemplating those. But just thinking about that, and, and Angela mentioned the issue of short-termism, which is obviously an issue in accounting and, and finance, but, but in, in, in research as well, in the sense of the, the short-term publication and you know, big ideas mm -hmm. being absent because of that, uh, there are new paradigms in politics and, and new things that come out in political theory around what has changed in politics, in economics, new paradigms, new ways of thinking about the world that are informed by the crisis or that will help us understand the next one? Any, any new 
suggestions there or ideas coming out of research? Or? This is quite interesting, and this would be controversial. There's a number of people said, we need a new economics, and there's this Institute for New Economic Thinking, and I'm sorry, they're good people, and they write great, there's good textbooks, maybe they're used here. Um, but we knew all that stuff. Some second-tier institutions taught uh, some kind of debased, simplistic, um, you know, market-dominant uh, theories. But, you know, we knew about inequality. We knew about the trends in inequality. If you had a wide reading, you knew that. So I'm surprised there hasn't been that much really new thinking. And I, I think that economics as a discipline is still somewhat shell-shocked by the crisis, by the failure, by the recognition that actually we don't understand an awful lot of things. Um, and some people thought we did, but, but we didn't. And so there, there are some new fashions of behavioral economics, but behavioral economics does not have the power of the, the old models. Mm. Which uh, the, the, So the economics remains in a transitional phase, uh, a, a problematic phase, so the best economic policy is done by people with historical experience of, uh, of problems in the past, rather than theoretically not churning through models and mm. so forth. Yeah, that's sort of the Moore Institute people, uh, uh, <laughs> a piece of uh, history looking back to, to the broader perspective, so thank you for that. I think, I think, I think it's, 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 a very, it's a really good, good question, and there, there's a sense in which you know, I think some things, I mean, behavioral economics, I think you said a fashion was the word, which I think is probably um, more something that's going to be embedded more into economics in the future. It's really going more micro than micro. It's more like nano to micro in some ways. But I think what it does point to is the, is the importance of having the cross-disciplinary approaches to some issues in terms of understanding getting out to the people who have to make decisions and to deal with these, these things. I mean, I've always had a philosophy in life that if you don't admit to a question or a problem, you can't actually do much about it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you were talking about that period before the, the, um, the Troika came in, a lot of it was a certain amount of denial going on, a certain amount of rhetoric developing, which made it then very hard to make what were very tough decisions. So getting into a situation where, I mean, we talk more about problem-based learning now, but identifying problems, learning from problems and the analysis of it, getting more into that frame of reference in a kind of social science decision-making area, I think is actually a very a very valuable thing. Mm -hmm. And I think then having messages that can be communicated across, because economists, we use shorthand a lot of the time, and that shorthand can be extremely offensive to real people doing real jobs in real family situations, et cetera, et cetera. So it's very important that that, that, that language is appropriately appropriately done. What I think we can see is that, you know, you talk about what happened with the, with the crisis and Patrick had it in his, in his charts. I mean, there was reckless lending by the banks to people who, who did not have the, the, the resilience in face of any interest rate rise or any job income loss or whatever to do it. So that was that a kind of a reckless set of behavior. But that wasn't actually remembered afterwards. I mean, you, you can't kind of, it was, it was a very difficult thing societally People took on more debt than they, they should. Why? Because banks would give it to them. The banks didn't force it on them. But on the other hand, they thought the banks were the kind of people who could be relied on to not lend to you unless you were a reasonable lender. Because that was the position of the Irish banks for maybe 200 years. So there was a kind of a changed behaviour in the Irish banks that was very dramatic. And people got, got, got caught up with that. But we're in the strange situation now. You know, Before the crisis, what we'll be talking about, it was housing end of the crisis or coming to the end of crisis, what are we talking about? 
housing. So there's an issue in relation to housing, which is an issue linked to some of the bigger questions in society about demographics, about inequality, about whatever, that we still really haven't, in my view, dealt with. We haven't kind of brought the bits together and said that issue is still there. So there are some systemic things that underlie the problem that's there today and underlay the problem that was back in a period where we were building 90,000 houses mm. in places where people weren't necessarily looking for them. Mm. So I think that, that's why, as I said, these 10-year things are really very useful because you get the longer picture and you know, things change incrementally and we need, to, we need to, to recognize that there was a longer pattern. Mm -hmm. John, any comments on that? Yeah, there's a very recent, a very interesting recent paper by uh, Ben Bernanke uh, where he sort of makes the argument that the real failures were not so much in economic science, even though there were failures uh, there, but then when he calls economic engineering what was really economic management, uh, using the knowledge uh, that, 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 we ha that we had. Uh, and I think most of the, the tools that we would have needed to sort of think through the crisis were probably there in, in economics, but maybe not getting the emphasis that they uh, deserved. Uh, so in macroeconomics, there's a huge focus on linear models, where what we saw in the, in the crisis with these sort of adverse feedback loops, so, um, so links between the, the banking system, uh, the, the real economy, uh, uh, the, the, the fiscal system, uh, and deterioration in one having uh, adverse feedbacks. And you needed really a different set of tools, which are there in economics, but it uh, requires a more sort of systems-based uh, uh, thinking that would be sort of typical in the very sort of linear-focused uh, macroeconomic models. But I think it's there, it's just uh, that it, it needs uh, sort of different emphasis. Uh, Francis, uh, I think, brought up the very important point uh, about housing. So if we think about uh, the, the most negative thing that's really, in a sense, come out uh, of the, the, the crisis is the, the, the problem that we're uh, facing uh, in, the, in, in the housing market at the, at the moment. And, and really, you can see the, sort of the, uh, this goes back uh, before the crisis, uh, also, as uh, Francis said. Uh, so you essentially had this you know, strong demand, uh, but uh, quite high cost uh, of provision. And the, and the two things that you really need from your housing market is you, you need houses for people to live in and they need to be uh, affordable. And that was uh, uh, camouflaged in, uh, to, uh, by the availability of credit, which allowed you to almost afford the affordability problem uh, while creating incentives to, to, to build a lot of houses. And then the crisis came. Uh, we stopped uh, building houses. We kind of forced to because uh, the money uh, wasn't there. But also it really destroyed uh, the uh, supply uh, capacity. So uh, given that the economy then rebounded maybe faster than expected, uh, sort of a crisis uh, in the housing market was probably inevitable, but, but again, it's not something that people were focused on uh, a few years ago. And, and, and this is where I think some really simple economics uh, uh, can, uh, can be very helpful in sort of focusing us uh, on what the solutions need to be. Uh, because if the, if the issues are uh, the availability of houses for people to live in and the affordability of those houses, uh, what you need to do is essentially shift the supply curve. Uh, uh, while uh, an awful lot of the debate uh, takes place, I think, uh, in, in, in a sort of different paradigm. Uh, so you could, you could think of policies that are sort of demand-focused, which may increase the, the quantity of housing that's out there but raise the price, uh, or policies that involve price controls, particularly rent controls, which will actually reduce the quantity of housing, even though it may uh, increase affordability for some people. If you really want to increase 
uh, affordability and availability, uh, you have to shift that supply curve, which indicates you know, a particular set of policies uh, that will cover you know, everything from uh, the zoning system to the planning system to the regulatory system to the public procurement uh, system um, uh, to vacant site levies and, 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 and so on. Uh, and I think the, the question, and, and of course affordability and availability are not the only things that matter. You might be concerned about the quality of the housing stock, uh, the environmental impacts of sprawl. Uh, but I think what we need to do, uh, and this again I think is what fairly basic economics directs us uh, 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 to, uh, is to, to those other policies uh, which may have the effect of shifting the supply curve in the, in the opposite direction, so to increase the quality of the housing stock, which is, which, which is a good thing, uh, but if that involves uh, regulations that make uh, housing more costly to, to provide, you're moving in exactly the wrong direction. So anybody you know, suggesting policies that don't shift the supply curve in the right direction, I think has a strong sort of burden of, of, of proof. Uh, and what we have at the moment is a, sort of a very confused debate about the, these things where I think some very basic economics uh, could point us in the right direction. Uh, uh, and I think this is a huge generational issue. Uh, and, and many of you in, in this room, this is the biggest challenge that you face in terms of uh, access to, to, to housing. Uh, and it, uh, I think it needs to be really the priority uh, in terms of economic policy uh, but we need uh, to draw on economics to, to have a clear-headed debate uh, about what we need to do about it. Do you want to get in there, Francis? Yeah, I, I mean, I, two things. I think, I think, go back to something Patrick touched on and, 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 and John touched on as well. I think the toolkits were there. I think they just happened to be in the bottom drawer as opposed to the top drawer, or they were under the three layers of jumpers and had kind of got forgotten about. But, I mean, when I did economics, in, studied economics in the, in, in the 70s, you know, a lot of the issue was about market failure, about things that didn't work, and the role of government in that context. And then you needed to look at that, at that particular role and what government needed to do and how it, need, how it would intervene to make the tax system better, to make the distribution system better, to make the, the, the production system more efficient. And then we sort of got caught up into, and I do think this is the 1980s Thatcher-Reagan issue, of an ideological bias that came into sort of putting away those worries and actually presuming that the market was the way to drive everything. Now, I'm a great believer in the market. I think it does something tremendously well. But you don't, you know, the light regulation, the, 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 the sort of shift away from that was a very, very gradual one, the notion that everything had to be public-private partnerships, that it had to be. And it was ideological rather than looking at it and saying, is the most efficient way to build hospitals, schools, roads, whatever, this, that or the other. It moved away from a kind of an evidenced, cold, logical, rational look at it, and it became an ideological piece. And the problem with that is that if, once you start doing it, and I think this is where we are at the moment, is that we got out of doing a lot of, government got out of doing a lot of things, and some of them were right to get out of doing. But now, if we find that the market system didn't produce it, we don't necessarily have the skill sets to go back and do what we used to do before. So it goes back to, I suppose, my, my, my kind of, uh, simple analysis that you've got to sort of recognize what is it that's stopping us dealing with the housing problem? What is it? And let's call it. And, and the difficulty is that the sort of the media and politics generally looks for the, same, the silver bullet. And, you know, whether it's health, whether it's housing, whether it's education, there aren't silver bullets. This is a systemic longer-term strategy that looks at it that way. But I think we, we should become conscious of the fact that the biases, for example, 
towards competition as the way to do everything. I mean, listen to this morning's news was about waste. And I remember the discussions in the late 1990s about moving over to competition in the whole waste area. And nobody necessarily looked at whether or not the competitive market would necessarily work. Four years ago, five years ago, there was a discussion about bringing in the Dutch system of health insurance into Ireland. And it turned out that you needed a minimum of a population of five million uh, to get one um, efficient producer, which meant that Ireland could never have a competitive system. But the ideological idea of that came into discussion, and I think we spent kind of two policy years in a wilderness discussing something which could never work in the practical uh, environment in which we were operating. So to me, they're the, they're the sort of issues that to be, to be mindful of, the, the sort of habits we get into over a period of time. And, and sometimes the early days they work, but maybe they overshoot and we need to refresh back. Mm -hmm. Okay, I mentioned earlier that, that we're going to have time for questions, so I'm going to hand over to Alan Ahern uh, in that context. Um, and very interesting discussion. I'm, I'm just currently uh, reading uh, Yuval Noah, Noah Hariri. Some of you might know the work on Sapiens, but he also has what looks in the face of it like a pop psychology book, which is tw 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. <laughs> and one of those, or two of those, are worth commenting on here. I think one, one is that, that the, the notion at beginning, or before the crisis, that it was the end of history, Fukuyama's thinking. And, and uh, Hariri argues we're actually in the middle of history, uh, always. <laughs> and I think that's a particularly interesting uh, observation and the second one he thinks about is that we're not the centre of the universe. Uh, you know that that that, that there, I remember somebody commenting here from this university. I think at a meeting uh, that I heard about is, is people think that we're, they're thinking about us all the time, uh, but they're not. And I think that idea that this is a special time or that it's a as you say it was a gilded age before the crisis uh, or now that it's particularly difficult. I think uh, history would t tells us that the that we're in the middle of it and. To go back to Heaney's uh, uh, wording that I started with, this idea of uh, everything and nothing spoken, I hope this afternoon uh, we've had everything and something spoken at least, and the beginning of that conversation, and uh, not the, uh, neither the, uh, the, 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 the end of it in, in particular, uh, and I look forward to hearing more about it. Terribly sorry I can't stay, one of those things that uh, I regret as president that I can't stay through all of these sessions, uh, but a particularly pleasure for me to be here this afternoon and uh, I look forward to uh, further work and commend everybody that's been involved uh, and uh, look forward to, uh, I'm sure, a very interesting discussion led by Alan. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, President O'Hogarty. Um, we have about 25 minutes for questions and answers. Um, so why don't we um, open it up to the floor. There, is, there are roving mics going around the place. Um, so if you just put up your hand, um, Brendan Kennelly. Hello. Sorry, just the gentleman behind you and I'll get you just straight after. Uh, it's a great help when the chairperson knows you. Thanks, Alan. <laughs> uh, so, um, uh, so let me say at the start that I found the discussion fantastic and really interesting from uh, Patrick and uh, the, the other contributors as well. So um, I want to try and maybe pose a question for both Francis and Patrick, if, if that's okay. And uh, um, Francis, you said uh, about the need for this globalized world needing uh, new institutions. And um, I think just three years ago, the annual conference of the IEA was, was in Galway, and one of the plenary talks uh, that, uh, that particular year was from Marcus um, Brunnerheimer, I might have mispronouncing his name, um, and he, 
he gave an interesting talk. Well, half of it was interesting. Another half was uh, terrible. But, uh, <laughs> but don't tell him I said that. But he, the half that was interesting was brilliant. But he talked about how that the, the, the European, say, central bank uh, had been, if you like, designed in the, in the spirit of, say, the German approach to economic policy making as opposed to the French uh, approach to economic policy making. Now, it, in a sense, he, he was setting them up as kind of um, caricatures a little. But he, his argument anyway was that what we had got in the European institution, the main European institution that had been designed for EMU, was a very kind of particular type of institution with a particular type of, um, of um, approach. Patrick, you said about the bad policy that was implemented uh, during the crisis, but I suppose I just wonder whether whether there hasn't been enough attention given to the possibility that that the kind of globalized institution that that is needed and the ECB as being an example of one, you know, 30 years ago it didn't exist, so it has emerged, it, it, born out of this globalized era. Whether, if you like, that we're, we're not doing that very well, um, you know, that we, that we, even if you think about... <laughs> It's a mystery to me where the ECB ever came from in the sense of, you know, if we think about a national policy institution that's needed, we might think about, say, the Citizens' Assembly getting together and coming up with some ideas. And how, how that kind of exercise is even possible in this globalized world is a mystery to me. So I'm sorry now that's long comments, not really a question. Um, I... Interesting question. ECB was set up to solve a particular problem, inflation. The Germans had figured out how to do that. ECB model, as you said, was built on Bundesbank model. It, 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 would, it worked reasonably well for 10 years. It was, its design was, uh, was able to work with moderate shocks. It was not able to cope with shocks that were outside in the historic range, for a number of reasons. One was it was set up as a essentially a technocratic institution, away from politics, single uh, inflation target. But with the crisis, there were distributional issues between different countries. So we say, oh, well, the British had the Bank of England, so oh, they could solve the problem. Well, well yeah, they did a, a, a good job, but still parts of Britain were badly battered by the, much worse uh, hit by the recession than other parts. But nobody said, what about the Bank of England? They hate the north of England. They don't. They just are dealing with something that is acknowledged as a single system. And it's up to the government of England, Britain, to sort out those, those problems. In Europe, it's very strong institution, the ECB, very narrow focus, no mandate to say, oh, well, we'll take some money from Germ north of Germany and give it to Greece. No mandate for that. So it took them quite a while and a lot of, um, you know, acrobatics to find ways of uh, alleviating this, this crisis. Uh, other, and to some extent, this was done by appealing to the historical precedent. And I remember saying so many times, I said, this is what central banks do. We, 
we have an implicit mandate to do this and that and the other thing because we know this is what central banks do and just because it isn't written down specifically in the, in the statute of the ECB. Uh, we, so I would think to some extent that it's not so much that the ECB lacks powers, it is actually almost too powerful, very powerful institution as you, you can write laws and things. It's the fact that, it, it, that there isn't the European government uh, that's able to pol at least politically deal with these issues because you know when the ministers get around the table are they really going to bail Greece out to a limited extent but not to a, a very thorough extent so I think the governance of these very globalized uh, this very globalized world is complex Europe was halfway across the bridge let's see if globalization shrinks now In the first years after the crisis they said this is going to be like the 1930s there are going to be trade barriers and then there weren't trade barriers. Why not? Most people think it's because the big transnational business interests said, oh, be careful here, don't have trade barriers because we rely on complex value chains, we're importing and exporting, so we don't want barriers. You'll all be better off if you don't have barriers. And that held until Trump arrived. Now, we don't know what's going to happen in the future, but it may break this globalization up. And if it does, it's partly because governments haven't been able to get their minds around bringing, bringing people with them. I was shocked at the time of Trump was coming into being elected, just talking to American colleagues, economists, how little they knew about how poorly American poor people had been, had been dealt with. It had, had fallen off the radar. So that government, despite you know, many strengths, and it had, had neglected a large part and this is true in other countries as well. Maybe not so much. So maybe we have, we think we have a dysfunctional politics here. We always think we have a terrible dysfunction. But dis there are some elements of our politics. The local dimension. The fact that politicians are in touch with what, and they say, well, don't do that because there's a large part of my constituency is going to be badly affected. That may be a block on necessary development, but it also, at least, doesn't leave as many people behind as it otherwise would. Just, just a couple of points. I mean, one thing I think economists, long time hence, have always looked at the distribution effect of tax policy uh, very carefully. And they're aware of, um, you know, who is, who, what its impact was in the SRI, we would have the switch model. But there'd been, you know, a lot of analysis done by economists on that over the years. It wasn't done actually very much on public expenditure. So one of the first things that happened in the crisis was governments were cutting public expenditure. And the, the, the income distribution effects of the cut in public expenditure, in fact, exacerbated some of the problems that happened both in Ireland and in the UK, and I think left a lot of people feeling very badly done by because they had cuts in their public in the services they were getting, which had had had, had not happened had not happened them previously. So you have you have that piece with it. But you didn't also, monetary policy typically was not linked to income distribution within countries and particular to that sense of place. Now, we all knew that industry was distributed in the UK and, and America and indeed in Ireland across the whole country so that when you got a sectoral shift or a restructuring of the economy, there were winners and there were losers. There were large-scale losers in, in both the UK and, 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 and in the US. Going back to the 1980s, the beginnings of, of globalization on a big scale, the rationalization of large sectors of the economy, etc. And they had been ignored. And just to, 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 you know, I think this crisis brought all that out in a, in a way that wasn't done before. I spent all of my life until the crisis being a critic 
of our multi-seat constituency issue here. I would have been heard to be at many a dinner party over many a glass of wine saying, you know, this is really leads to clientelism, it doesn't lead to strategic planning, it doesn't lead to etc. I entirely changed my view after the crisis because I think it was a product of our system that politicians were aware everywhere of where there was change. And it was debated across parties because any county that was badly affected by something, there were people in all parties in that county. So I think that sense of place, which again, if I was doing a critique of economics in the 20th, 20th early 21st century, I think this, the importance of the sense of place as a way that people connect to, because we don't live atomistically, despite our economic models, very often thinking of us that way, we are in a space. And then when you get a concentration where an impact is concentrated, as in the north of England, as in the, the parts of the American Midwest, it's all the more, all the greater. And that's where the politics of your situation either makes that worse or better. And in our case, I think it helped.